Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It is a take-two party on a Friday with Mara Carabello and Greg Hughes. Thanks for being here. Some people think politics is fun. For me, it's like football. It's exciting. You never know what's going to happen. Speaking of that, the Salt Lake City mayoral race, uh, you were intimately involved in this. Were you surprised by how this all ended? Before we go into that, for someone who's been hiding under a rock, Aaron Mendenhall (laughs) came out on top, Luce Escamilla, Jim DeBacchus in third after that, David Garbett, and then David Ibarra, Stan Penfold, and then Rainer Huck and Richard Goldberger. But Aaron Mendenhall was a big surprise to me, and maybe I wasn't involved enough to know, but that was a surprise. Her first place was a big surprise to me. You knew she had momentum. Yeah. You knew she was doing well, but first, and a solid first. Comfortably. Yeah. yeah. It was a, I, I, I found myself surprised. I then found myself surprised that Jim DeBacchus wasn't in the top two. Having said that, you knew Luz was doing well, too. I mean, but I was, I'm surprised he's not in the final. I'm, before I turn it over to Greg, I am going to say, though, strong, smart, experienced women, two of them, qualified, interesting. They have um, similarities, but they also have some differences. So I'm excited to see two women in the final. And Erin's tried to point out her difference in that she served on the city council instead of in the legislature. Uh, were you surprised? Jim's a friend. A lot of people wouldn't think that about the two of you, that you're friends. No, but did you say that out loud? You're I know. Friend. Both of our I would ruin the back. secret, That might have right? been why he lost, the yeah. poor guy. You know, he admitted that, uh, he knew you and sometimes spoke to you. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that was a that I was, was a shocked. I thought him. that Jim would be going to the fall Look, um, I, election. Heidi and, and Mara, I will tell you that everything that I think I know about campaigns and elections, I simply don't know mm-hmm. because I would tell you that Jim DeBacchus went in that race with what I thought was the largest and maybe most energetic base. Uh, That's a base that he has cultivated through public service as a state senator. It was a a base he had when he was the the party chair of the the Democrat Party for Utah. Uh, He has had a strong following uh, in in the issues that he's engaged in. And I thought that that was, especially with a low voter turnout, as we saw was happening with early voting, I thought that played in his favor a lot. We never saw a poll where Mm -hmm. he wasn't in first place. We saw the margins narrow. But I expected that as candidates got out there, got their name out there, did their effort that people would choose, uh, undecideds would go, to maybe break to other candidates. So I thought it would always tighten up. The fact that he did not make it to the, to the November uh, election blows my mind. And I, again, hats off to Erin Mendenhall. She was the chair of the uh, Salt Lake Council when I worked with her okay. on Operation Rio Grande. And we worked very closely together and I did with the council. And uh, she is a true leader. And, and Luz, I served with in leadership. She was in the Senate minority leadership, and I was in the House majority leadership. And so our our committees and our, our executive approach committees, we've, we've spent time together. So two great candidates, strong leaders, but... I was surprised that Aaron took first, as you said, and I'm surprised Jim's not in the in the race in the a fall. A couple of notes, just as 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 we sort of take it apart, which is why we're in politics, right? Yes. It's not a it's a it's a sport. I don't mean it frivolously, but you don't but know. But it what's sort of is. Happen. You don't know. And a no. um, couple things, though. 
uh, it shouldn't, we, we, we need to get over the reputation of it being a low voter turnout because it ended up being a strong, a pretty representative, he had like 39,000 votes. So you ended up with an okay voter. In Salt Lake voter City? Yeah. Okay. It was actually yeah, yeah. higher than the last uh, primary for it the mayoral was. election. Yeah. It started as slow as slow can be. Yeah. But it ended up, okay. you know. And the other thing you can't take out of the factor, which uh, we sometimes conflate with name ID, but it is those two women are both holding office right now and have a constituency that's voting for him right now. So Jim had that, and Jim has those, but it's not current. I mean, it's not old either, but they right. both uh, have districts that they did a nice job. If you look at the distribution of some of their core votes, you see them performing really well in the representational districts they're currently in. So as we try and figure out why, which we'll... Never I know, it's always interesting. I think that when you have eight candidates, too, you're spreading the votes a lot thinner yes. for everyone, and you do have that low voter turnout, which wasn't as low as we were expecting, which is a good thing. But, yeah, it definitely kind of throws the votes around. So interesting things happening. The demographics, identity politics, I think, plays a stronger role in the elections in Salt Lake City than other parts of Utah. Sure. And I thought if you were to look at the identity or the demographics that you can check the box for, um, I thought that Aaron Mendenhall didn't have enough boxes to check, as mm -hmm. maybe some of the other yeah. candidates, uh, in terms of identity politics. And so right. for her to surge and not only take the lead, to come in first, but come in first comfortably, again, uh, contradicts what I would have thought the trends would have been in that election. But hats off to the candidates. I, I always believe that the candidates that work the hardest uh, do see success. I really think it can, it can boil down to that. And so clearly uh, those candidates and their campaigns uh, were... Yeah, breaking a pick. They were working as hard as they could to get uh, where they are. Absolutely. And I don't think any of them are done yet. Jim DeBacchus, David Garbett, David Ibarra, Pimple. I think there's a lot of good things that can happen and involvement. All people who really care about their community. Yeah, so. a good group of people. Yeah, it was absolutely. A deep pool. I, again, I couldn't talk about how much I liked any of them or else it would ruin their races. So I had to keep quiet, <laughs> keep quiet. for all of their sakes. But, but yeah, it was a deep field. And there were, I, I've, I've known almost all, probably all but two of those candidates. Yeah. I've, I've gotten to know or have worked with and uh, I, I felt like Salt Lake City in some ways was in a win-win uh, with the with the robust there were good options. how yes, hard were people good options. were working. Yeah. Sure. And, I, and one last note on this election, I did see people talking yesterday that they were happy to see that Jim uh, quickly set, didn't ask for a recount. He said, you know, I've been grateful for this opportunity, I'm out, instead of wanting to fight because oftentimes we see in politics now just that you don't want to give up and you don't want to call the election and you want to wait till more numbers come in. So I like when we have peace on earth. It's a nice thing. <laughs> <sighs> All right. He's Nick, looking for a vacation. He's, he's great everyone needs a flights. vacation. The closest uh, I've ever felt is I used to run for student government and every other year I would win or lose. And I really didn't <laughs> like losing. Losing's not fun. You need some time to I hate losing more than I love winning. That's, I don't know <laughs> if that's healthy, but that's that how true. I feel. It's true. Okay. Um, the Inland Port meeting canceled again <laughs> after five uh, minutes this week. Greg, what is going wrong? I mean, obviously uh, that nobody was shot this time with like yeah. who knows what. Nobody was. Yeah, fighting. I don't know that blocks were closed, tracks were shut down. So this was. I an don't improvement. think it was. Yeah, maybe it was an improvement. But <laughs> but I think what what this was not an Inland Port board meeting. Uh, it was uh, a meeting called by uh, Utah's Association of Counties. Uh, they were looking with county leaders at opportunities to maybe see other ports in a system of bonded U.S. Customs ports around the state that would take the emphasis off of Salt Lake City and its airshed and some yeah. of its impact. Uh, these should have been welcome uh, conversations that those that were concerned about the environment or its impact or the inland ports impact in Salt Lake City should have been excited to see. But they uh, came uh, with a with the goal to shut down that meeting and to create uh, 
interruption and uh, hostility. So how do we uh, fix this? There are people who want to get answers and ask questions and know what's moving forward. I think it's going to, look, we're good, it's going to move forward. The, the infrastructure of the state of Utah screams for this as this global supply chain becomes more robust. It's coming. Uh, these attempts to take public hearings and to weaponize them and to try and shut it down won't be successful. Uh, those conversations will continue to happen. But those that have earnestly tried to create environments for engagement and discourse and to learn from one another, the cynicism is going to rise to a level where there will be a, there'll be the optics of transparency, but maybe not the substance needed or should that should be there. And that that I think we all lose when that's the case. But you have so to. So are they weaponizing, or are they trying to they create a to conversation? People, yeah. So uh, it depends on who they are, right? On yeah. What we're struggling with at the inland port. A couple of things I think that uh, are good changes. Uh, we have a full-time executive director in Jack Hedge, and so we, they now have some bandwidth to be able to prepare. And as as Greg said, this was an Envision Utah UAC yeah. meeting, uh, not a proper board meeting or others. I think one thing we don't want to lose sight of is sitting in that room were, as Greg said, county commissioners. Mm -hmm. There were um, industry that wanted to talk about possibilities. There were a lot of concerned citizens who in some ways maybe have the same concerns as these sort of semi-pro uh, protesters. Yeah. And so again, what I think is frustrating everybody is there's a small wackadoodle minority that are disrupting and there's some really interesting conversations to be had about our environment, mm -hmm. about what's going on, and they're not able to happen. I do think we're going to see a shift. What I hear from the Inland Port Authority is they are prepared to do what it takes to keep these meetings open, to uh, stay in front of yeah. people, and to say, okay, this is not going to win the day, but we're going to hang in there uh, longer. I, my, my only concern, though, is that that, didn't, that meeting did not have any board members in it. Uh, that is a meeting that could have easily have occurred with Jack, the executive right. director, and county leaders uh, without posting it, without letting anyone know. I think it was a courtesy and an attempt to take the high road. That was, in hindsight, a mistake because the meeting didn't ultimately happen, uh, whether it was at the UAC offices or even the police station that they tried to hold it at. Uh, it got so disorderly that it, it could, that meeting could not occur. I don't think you're going to see people try to take the high road if doing that means you don't actually get to have that dialogue. So no, we don't this want was, closed this door was, meetings. But this was yeah. this was an attempt to, to make sure that people could engage or participate. Yeah. Uh, but if it's that, if it's shutting it down, if you try to do that, I think conversations are going to happen uh, where you're not broadcasting or, or, or having that courtesy. Again, no board me members were there. There's no right. opens meeting law that would need to be honored. I think people were trying to take a high road. You can't take a high road. It takes two to tango, and you need a people that want to engage, and they don't. They want to shut it down. Yeah, follow the rules, people. It'll be yeah. more fun. You can talk about what you like and you don't like, and we can all have a say. <laughs> we'll see how it goes next week. <laughs> Probably not well. Uh, have you guys heard that uh, Vice President Pence is coming to town? I saw that in the Tribune yesterday. You've heard rumblings. Um, I've heard he rumblings. I, I, we hear that he is. Here's what I don't understand. Why are you hiding it? I mean... Pence is coming to town. He's the vice president. He's going to be, you know, he's our, he's the giant Utah shield against, you know, uh, Greg's president. And so <laughs> why, why, why not? Uh, why aren't we, why don't we know he's coming? I know it's, you know, they make a, a little, great, they're a, a dynamic weird. duo more. I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> shield. I feel like you still have people that you talk to that should know about this. Why are they not putting it out there? Is you he going to change his I, mind and not maybe, come here? Nah, I, I, I don't know about. Maybe these, when they're actually the president and the vice president, maybe there's a security element to it where you can't really, where they're keeping it a little quieter. But I have heard, not from official sources, but I've heard that 
the vice president's going to make a visit. Uh, whether uh, I think it'll be once uh, that visit is confirmed, uh, and I imagine Secret Service come do whatever they do. I think people will know it'll be more broadly uh, known among the public that, that the vice president's here. And what a great thing! Utah has, for a, for many election cycles, been considered a flyover state where we were here for fundraising, but really not a whole lot more. I understand that the vice president uh, will be talking policy, potentially international trade while he is here. Yeah. Uh, it is fun to see, and I think it's important for the public to note that uh, Democrat candidates for president have have arrived here in Utah and will continue right. to do so. And we have uh, the president and vice president uh, who prioritize. And you're saying that's because we're becoming a swing state? No, I think it's, that, it's, it's I, Mara I, wants I, you to say it out loud. You know, that was, that's a great interpretation, Mara. That's but what I heard you say. It is, we are relevant because uh, our votes matter. And in the, in the primary season, I think that we're not one you take for granted. Yeah. I think as long as President Trump is on the ballot, we're a swing state. That's just more, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's hard I to know. I think we're a Republican state. You think we're a Republican state? I don't state. think there's an alternative <laughs> for anyone to vote for, so. All right, we'll see. You never know. There might be a new Evan McMullen this next time uh, around. We'll see. That went well. Yeah, see if that happens I again. I see him on Twitter sometimes. Okay, we got to talk about something else that was huge this week. Six officers, that's a lot of officers, shot in Philadelphia. Luckily, none of them life-threatening, but we have officers being shot here in Utah on a regular basis. We, unfortunately, have officers firing shots in the opposite direction. This is a lot. Is this a gun control issue? What kind of issue is this? So I, I, I find that the narrative regarding our law enforcement officers has... Um, it's taken a, a, a real negative tone, uh, and it's been a while now. I, I, when we talk about law enforcement, and you see images in New York City where there are people dousing these uniformed officers with water, and they're harassing them, and they're walking away, uh, I don't think that that makes those images that we see, uh, I'm not proud to see that. It, it concerns me that, th that the public would turn on law enforcement officers like that. You go and you see what happened in Philadelphia, and there was even heckling of these officers in the midst of this crisis where a man with an assault rifle fired on these officers. Six of these officers were wounded. Uh, you have an emergency uh, situation, uh, people that are trapped in the building, uh, and you saw immediately people start talking about gun control and start using it as a political issue. There isn't a gun control. There's not a criminal background check that was going to keep that criminal that we now know had a mile-long criminal record from uh, acquiring a weapon and using it. There's, we can feel good about laws, but that, those laws didn't apply in, in, in this uh, crisis and what had happened there. And I, I just, I worry that when we see uh, officers under attack, when we see this happening, uh, we're talking about the wrong things. We are talking about gun control when we should really be talking about how is, what's going on around us? Why are we, why are officers going to a Starbucks and being informed that patrons here at the Starbucks no longer don't feel comfortable with you being here, would you please leave? What's happening? I, I am, I am really same, concerned yeah. about that. And at the same time, I think it's been in the last year, I, I, it's less than a year in New York City, they have eight officers that have taken their own lives. So it's not an easy job. You know that. You come from a house where you've had a chief of police. Is this something you talk about? Is it a concern that police are a target to people? Sure. And as you said, you know, yeah. I, I, I live with a former chief of police, and we talk a lot. And, and Greg's right. The dialogue we're having about where law enforcement fits is an ongoing dialogue. I will say, and I'm going to counter what you say with saying, when incidents like this happen, who says, do you know what we got to talk about? We have to talk about regulation of guns. Who says that is the police? The police have routinely stepped up and said, 
You know, we have to have a meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. I think where the police are meaningful is they're not taking uh, this this advocacy approach that is sometimes unproductive. But police are often the ones that want to talk about proliferation, and they want to talk about access, and they want to talk about why are we putting them in the position of having availability to firearms for people who can put them in danger and, you know. So I will say where this comes into account for me is over and over, you know, um, Almost every gun violence prevention center has a representative from a law enforcement agency. Law enforcement does want to talk about regulations. They don't see themselves as advocates. I don't think they put themselves in those positions. But I do think there is a relationship to regulation. We know of laws that when you make pyramids, nothing, I I mean, I think think it's really disingenuous on gun laws to say, would this have solved every problem? Because that's not the application we have to any other law. You say, how do I reduce the likelihood? And the stakes are so high with gun laws because what they end up in is death and and all of us being worried and taking different positions. So the stakes are so high that we do know that pyramids in which it's harder to attain things. I'm not speaking about this man who who clearly was a bad guy. Um, When we make it harder, we do know less of it happens. There is a relationship between regulation and proliferation. And, And who I hear willing to have that conversation is law enforcement. And so in my mind, they do go together. They don't go together from the shrill advocacy, and I, and I agree with that. I, they don't go together from the shouting and this is your fault point of view. But I do think that regulations and where we're asking our law enforcement officers to go and going into homes in which they know likely law-abiding citizens have access to a yeah. lot of weaponry, uh, that's something I think they're saying you know, and the other thing I'm going to point out, and, and I'm just I'm just taking shots right now. One of the things I loved about what the Philadelphia mayor said is he said to his legislature, if you don't want to have a discussion about guns, let us have it then. If you're going to take a pass on this issue, let the municipalities have a pass. Let us take it into account. And I do think if states don't want to look at regulations and want to have real conversations about access to weapons in the United States, then I say pass it along to the municipalities. I, I, Are you okay with seeing that happen if we went to well, municipalities I, I, and police? No, I, well, I think that the jurisdictions that have different, that's why Utah doesn't have different, our gun laws are statewide because how do you adhere to the gun laws as you cross over from counties or cities or, or things like that? Here's, here's the issue that I have, and I think, Mara, I, I, I accept your point because I think the police officers many times feel outgunned. They do. They, they're they coming in with their, yeah, their you know, their issued pistol yeah. and they're coming in and they're facing these Which weapons. Which happened in that are, Philadelphia. Yes, right? and so I, I have a sympathy for that. Here's, here's my concern. Last count I've seen, there are 300 million firearms in this country. I don't care what law you pass, they don't disappear. Right. So then the question becomes, with 300 million weapons that are guns, the firearms that are in this country today, if you wrote a law and we made a law that said you can't have them, where do they go? What happened? They don't disappear. You can have a buyback program. You're not getting 300 million off of, of them. The, 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 it, I don't think you can put the genie in the bottle here in the United States when it ta- we talk about guns. It's culture, how we've had them, how it's gone on. We always compare to some state or country like Australia. It's the size of Texas. It's a very different place. It's, I, I live there. It's, it's, it's not the United States. I, they didn't have 300 million guns when they decided to say, we're not going to have any more. Our gun culture is 30 years old. Our gun no, culture I, I didn't start with Thomas that. Jefferson. We were not. We, we make up this emancipation by the musket. And, and you know what that was? That was when we defined the Second Amendment as a militia. So we redefined the Second Amendment. We redefined this, 
this I should be able I to block I heard you say load. this. I don't think so because I, where I grew up, there were guns in the racks. That. No, there were guns, hunting rifles in the racks of the, of the pickup trucks. Even in where I grew up, which was only... You but know, Greg, you at, and I would never be having this conversation if we were talking about hunting and hunting we saw rifles. Gu- we, saw we would guns, never be having this time. conversation. People had guns all really, the time. Really, AK-47s, and you're like strapping them on. Because no, the one thing I like about Utah yeah. is I've said to the crazies, you know what I'd do? I'd open carry. Because when you open carry in here, people go crazy, and they're like, this is really scary. And I'm like, it is, isn't so it? So don't hide it. it, it well, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, if you want to yeah. put that out there, why is it somehow better if you're walking around carrying you know, with a conceal. And if we can't address the proliferation and that the answer can't be, we, we have as many cars as we have everything. If, but, if, but, if you're saying volume is the reason we can't regulate, really? But, but, really? but to your point, regulate. So I'm not a guy, I wasn't, when I moved to Utah, I'm a pioneer, I'm the pioneer in the Hughes family. I'm the one That's that right. came across the West, right? I came from the East, I came over here. I'm the pioneer. Did so, you use a wagon? I, I did not. I used a little guy. Suzuki Samurai circa 91. Okay? okay, that's my Almost as so, so when I got here, I was not someone who ever used. I didn't sure. own guns. I didn't have a family that had guns. It was all foreign to me. And so I didn't really have strong opinions about the right to bear arms. Uh, it was explained to me about sovereignty and about the sovereignty in the people and, and how governments can be... Uh, heavy-handed in history, it's always been the case, and, and where guns are, able, you're able to protect yourself and your freedoms. But this is my point. So I don't have guns now. I bought one of these uh, commemorative, you know, Utah State Capitol rifles. That I they, heard those they, don't even work. Yeah, I don't know because I've never shot Good it. But I'll that. tell you this: <laughs> it was waiting at Cabela's for me for like a year and a half because I never went to pick it up. I paid for it, but it, I never picked it up because it wasn't on my mind. Right. So I get a call: Hey, what do you want us to do with this? You got to come get it. So I go to Cabela's. First time I'd ever been there, um, but they had me fill out two forms. Okay, they took those forms. They then sent me to a computer, and I filled out all the information I'd filled out on the forms on the computer. They then came back to me, and someone came and said that there was someone with the same last name as mine that had had issues or had problems, and asked if I knew them. My name's not a unique name I don't think and I said well look my social security number starts with a one because when you're back he starts with yeah. a one I'm yeah. sure this guy starts with a five yeah. you know that's kind of okay. so no I don't know but I was asked a lot of questions maybe right. it's because I look like a certain character I don't know but I left that experience saying so who doesn't think this is regulated because I didn't like I went through a serious scrutiny they asked me a lot of questions about someone I had never met before uh, or don't know um, there are regulations. There's. It seems to be, I felt like I wouldn't want to buy again because I wouldn't want to fill all that paperwork out again. I wouldn't want to have to sit at that computer and do all that. I wouldn't want someone to come and quiz me about people that have the same last name as I have. So I, I got I got my car thinking, you know, I've always accepted this premise that we have no regulations, that we need more regulations. Or everybody's getting guns and they don't have to account for it. That wasn't my experience. Now, I'll say it's anecdotal, but... What did I experience versus what we're arguing about? You can go to a gun show. A national retailer who was following national laws, who was covering their butt against a sale and doing exactly what they should have. If you want to go on an online site and buy those, you won't have that experience. Uh, If you want to straw buy, I can find a weapon for you and pass it to you, and we won't even have that Mara's got people. But but I'm just saying. And you need to give me that because I don't want to go through that again. I know, and you should. I'm all about. And you would look good with, like, an ammo right across. (laughs) But I'm saying. 
Of course, I mean, that is the experience of a national seller. And yeah. good for that national seller for doing that. Don't you, but don't you think that with technology, if you want to sell a gun and you didn't want to be liable for what would happen if, if someone was buying it, that we, we will see emerging apps and ways of signing and get, creating receipts and and making and, and doing some of this just by the market Laws are and about some of the liabilities. Risk, Greg. They're yeah. about reducing sure. risk. Regulation that, registration reduces risk. Won't that do it? In terms of regulating and making sure we know how guns are sold or how they're bought if we if we if technology helps us there versus Government saying, it "Okay, will, we don't want guns anymore. We're gonna." We're we gonna need the political will because government, who is 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 the one who has decided how regulated this is, they've put a firm stake in the old gun control category, and we need the government to step up and continue to. Uh, have this and address this. We have a state legislature who doesn't want to address this at all. And it doesn't even want to address the easy parts of it. I mean, there's a lot of gray area here. I mean, despite this, there's a I ton. feel like Mara's launching a campaign. Man. Are you ready to run? I don't, I just don't think these laws, uh, are as, are as advertised. I think they feel good. I think they make people believe that we're addressing it. But I've even heard from CNN, you know, the, the, the national background check would not have prevented it and they go through all of that. Um, but their their point isn't you shouldn't have them. They're talking confiscation. They want there to not be guns at all. Right. And right. so they're kind of continuing that conversation beyond right. national background and, checks. And, and I think we're ready to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah, let's right. have it. I think, let's I think do it. there's people that will all not right. agree with confiscation. Uh, okay. Um, let's talk right now about this. Not a lot of agreement on this. It's pretty political. Trump uh, <laughs> made some immigration changes this week. So immigrants here legally who use public benefits like Medicaid, food stamps, or housing assistance, they might have a tougher time obtaining a green card under a new policy change. It was announced on Monday. It's at the center of some big changes. So basically the idea is if you can't um, support yourself when you come to the country, you're here and you can't prove that you can, Trump says no go. Is this an unfair way to run a country that's opening its arms to people? This is categorically un-American. This is so against who we are and what our story is. It's also revisionist history that the first generations of us marched in, pulled our old bootstraps out, and made something of nothing without any help. So here, here's where I fault from that. It relies on stereotypes and prejudice, not on statistics. What we know about government handouts, there's a bunch of people who are ne'er-do-wells, slackers, and losers. Okay, right, and they're staying on it and using it. That is not the majority of the people. We know that people who are on health care assistance are on for less than a year, year and a half. We know that people who use um, unemployment it works for them. These really are bridges. They might be too big. We need to talk about how much they've grown. I'm not defending the whole system. But I'm saying, by and large, the people who are using assistance. Now, let's place into the category that, that Trump has put them in. Let's say brown people, because this is not about immigration. This is about Mexicans and Central Americans. If you look at them and you look at their record, they're more likely to work. I mean, you have to have pick a thing. Are they either taking our jobs and working too hard, or are they slackers coming in and, and putting our things? And I think this is a perpetuation of a battle cry in, during an election. I don't think this is solid public policy. When you look at the public policy of it, so restrict the time you can stay on these subsidies. But to say you can't enter America based on your socioeconomic status, is so fundamentally anti-American that at this point I say I don't want to talk about Republicans and Democrats. I want to say it's so fundamentally un-American to say 
we welcome you here. We'll actually even help you get a foothold. There'll be limitations around that. But if you work hard and you do what you should, we have an open gate. And what's happened is we're closing our gates. And we know that company, countries that don't have fresh new energy and don't have workers, they start to atrophy. And we're doing this in America and we're doing it based on prejudice and we're doing it on discrimination. I think the challenges we're having in America are this war on poverty and status and class that we're not trying to have, but the rich are getting richer and the middle class is going away. And I really think that this is yet another take in which I see this is so fundamentally un-American and so uh, dependent on socioeconomics. So put conditions around the public's assistance. But no. to have it be a criteria for entering and bettering yourself, there are not people moving here because food stamps are awesome. There are people moving here because they're going to work two and three jobs to see if they can better their status. Absolutely. So, It'll be interesting. I wish I had better historical knowledge of this, but I know that my family, my mother's from Holland, that's where she was born. Her family tried to immigrate to the U.S., couldn't. At the time, I think you had to have someone sponsor you with a visa and okay. make sure uh, that you financially were okay. They were not at a point they could do that, so they went and lived in Canada for 10 years and then came here. So I know there have been stipulations along the way that you had to have a way to support yourself or someone who would promise that they'd kind I, of sign I, for you. I thought that was still um, the case. I, and I, I think did. some I, of that still exists, so I need to look up the laws a little better. Is this, do you agree with Mara, though, that this is coming from a somewhat racist standpoint from the president where I, he's... No, I, I don't find this the president is a part to be racist at all. No, I, here's, here's, first off, there are different uh, green cards you can apply for, or visas you can apply for, and they, they're, they're circumstances of marriage or work yeah. or, or different things. I had been I had been told, and I think this is back in the Obama administration, but I didn't think it was unique to the Obama administration that you had to show that if you were coming in, there there was a support structure you were coming into. I, I thought that was already the case. And um, but what I will say is where I have the greatest angst or concern or objection about the United States immigration policy is are the people that I meet who are doing their level best to have a job. Right. And they're doing everything that they feel they're supposed to do, right. and yet the bureaucratic paper chase yeah. doesn't allow them to stay. I had uh, people that there would see that I was a, yeah, I'm a public servant, I'm a state lawmaker, but people don't distinguish between federal and right. state. And I would have people that came to me and they'd have a job and they'd say, I've been trying, I've been applying, I don't get anything back and my, my green card's going to expire, can you help me? And so I would call our delegation to see right. if I could help. But I see so many examples where people are doing the very things yeah. that are being de described here and they themselves are not able to stay or they're running into that problem and that to me uh, is why you see I think trouble where people are coming illegally because they can't uh, follow the law in a successful and way. And Greg's hitting on something that I'm just going to move to because it's where it's egregious it's it's the area of overlap it's the area where both sides can come together and say what's stopping this is giant bureaucracy and pettiness we may have ideological differences on the inroad but greg's right once you're here the bureaucracy is completely unacceptable so i think you've you've hit on sort of in my mind trump's policy sits over here but i do think the biggest and easiest thing to find reprieve yes. in this is people have been filling out forms and then there are new forms and it it's just big the government at its I, worst. I, I yeah. support, I support a worst. wall, but I yeah. support a very wide gate. And I think that that gate ought to be orderly. It ought to be. It ought to make sense. And you ought to be able to come through by a legal means. Because my question is this: When you hear the Democrat debates where they say you should be able to come over without documentation, 
and be able to come over here and you should be have access to the services that are in this country. And you know that's nobody a great, says that, just for the record. Like when he says Democrats, that's sort I'm of a I'm quick talking about the, the I'm talking about the debate. I heard this in the yeah, debate, okay. and I was shocked by the... There were several by who the, I was surprised by, by, the, by the debate. By, you should be able to come over without documentation and, and all of that, which right. is the absence of any rule, of any right. gate. That's just coming over. But my question is, that sounds nice, but what happens in minute one of day one when you're here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you got across, mm -hmm. what now? Right. Where do you sleep that night? Right. Where do you go? Right. What is what is it that you're walking into? If we're saying that's okay, tell I don't know, understand how that works on on the macro. That's right. It sounds and when you can't provide for yourself, yes. that's when trouble starts. And, I know, yeah. and I'm just saying I don't I can't get my head around what that even means when we say let everybody come have no documentation. We it doesn't it doesn't compute to me because I don't know what people would do that very moment. I agree, and I also agree that that would be a stark change in U.S. policy, yeah. right? I mean, we have to point out that's not the norm, no. and that's not where we've been for no. 200 years. I mean, I'm know. surprised we have to debate it, because it's it's a it's a straight-faced position that some that's of these right. candidates are taking. Yeah, that's right. I don't understand. needs rules, it needs right. process, and the process needs to work. So when you're told to fill out a form, the, fill, the form. It, the, fill yeah. out the form, and then you get the answers you need. And I think that part of the problem is, I guess I equate it to children, Children like rules, even though they may not be happy you no, give them the time safe. to come home or whatever. Yeah, rules are good. It creates safety. It creates uh, stability. Yeah, stability for everyone. So I think we just need to really come together as a country and sit down and stop fighting about the political sides and make some rules and then follow them. But make them rules that yeah. keep people coming. I think there's electoral advantages to not agreeing. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that that's that's why you Greg don't see it Greg has just happen. hit on why we're going to have this conversation. So maybe again. if we didn't have a two-party system, it would be less. No, I, I don't think know. that there's people chasing votes uh, yeah. for the Always coming cycle, and that's why you're not seeing. And we're digging the soundbite. I mean, what we know of is any day of the week you'll pick entertainment and soundbites over listening to policy because it's boring. Yeah. 24-hour news show. is the problem. This it's is the one true, everyone's watching. It's true, solving real problems. Yes. Uh, Mara um, is ready to talk about something that <laughs> oh, I don't know well, if you're so prepared box. for. <sighs> but Mara wants to save the world. So President Trump's been busy this week mm. uh, making major changes These to endangered These are all her topics. You know, where are my topics at? you got to talk about, <laughs> oh, oh you got to talk about um, other stuff. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah, you don't. Okay. Neither do I. <laughs> President Trump doesn't want to save your animals. No, President Trump hates the earth. <laughs> and, and, and he loves it. He loves it to build big me. buildings on it. It hurts me. So it, two things came out to this this week about the um, the Endangered Species Act. Yeah. One is that instead of using biology and ecosystems <laughs> to talk about endangered species, science. we're going to, yep, that otherwise known as facts and science, we're going to talk about economic conditions and uh, money, because, you know, that has a lot to do with whether things are thriving in their natural environment. So now there's a new criteria that says, Part of the factor of whether you're an endangered species or not is uh, the economic conditions around you, which has nothing to do with endangered species, but okay, good. So then the other thing he said was that uh, it's also going to be a case-by-case. Case. They're not going to put out any deep philosophy or perspective on habitat biology. They're not going to use science. They're going to say this is going to be an ad hoc, otherwise known as, I don't know, it depends on what buddy wants to take the land to do what with. And I just, I just think we have to keep remembering that uh, economic development matters, and it's strong, but economic development is ever-changing. Natural resources and fuels and how we're relating to the energy we all use. So all of us who hate, you know, I'm not, I'm not in, in a total anti-position because I drove a car here today on asphalt roads and I'm enjoying the air conditioning. So all of this consumer energy that we use, 
love it, love economic development. What I love more is when species die, they're gone forever. When you're extinct, you're extinct. When our planet isn't functioning as it should, I'm not talking about global warming, so don't get on, you know. <laughs> but I'm just saying that when You're preempting me. I'm just waiting I, for I know, my I, turn. I, I, I'm waiting, I, I, I'm waiting and, and for and my turn. And you're really patient, and your nonverbal's nice. So thank, thank you. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> so I'm just listening. I, I'm just saying that these small rules are, once again, politicizing whether animals are, are worthy of staying in an ecosystem. Well, luckily, the economy here in Utah is amazing, so our so animals can save the animals. safe. I also feel like dolphins and sharks will be safe because they live on the coastal <laughs> communities that are like Saw a lot of dolphins so much money. Vacation. You did? They were, really cute. were they fun? Yeah. Lovely. So let's think about a state who's not doing so well right now. Well, look. Should I, we just let all their animals die? No, let me just say, <laughs> we have an endangered species issue that's in Utah. Sage grouse was, one of, was on this list. Uh, I believe every th word that Mara says as she believes it. I think that she does care about these little fuzzy, cute animals and that she doesn't want to see them disappear. And I don't think that's a counterintuitive position to have. But I do believe that many people uh, have used the spotted owl uh, to prevent logging. Uh, the logging industry in Washington State and Oregon, in the state of Oregon, I think that the sage-grouse issue is not so much about sage-grouse, but the... Uh, the, the natural resources and the, and the you know, industry that we have in Utah and how freezing up areas that may have sage grouse as habitat can stop some of the, the natural resources from being extracted from the ground. And there's, I think the economic issue has been brought to the table because the economic issue in many cases has been the issue as people have talked about the Endangered Species Act and how, uh, how it should be implemented. And so I think that it's been a, it's been a clever uh, trick, but here's what here's what's happened, Mara. They stopped all this logging because you know cutting down trees was so bad. And then we discovered that the plastic we were using. Remember when they said paper or plastic? And if you said paper, you were anti-environment. And if you were plastic, you cared. Well, then the, it's the flip. The script flipped. And now if you use plastic, you're bad. Now if your straws paper, yeah. if your bags paper, so now right. you're good. So that means that so if you go you to the keep, economic you game, track to if you go to just economies. <laughs> you will not in the long run be preserving what you want to preserve. I mean, that argument of but moving from paper to plastic. we should have been using paper all along, I think. So we think in the next year we'll, I mean, I can barely recycle now because it's so confusing. But I will say. <laughs> I know, that, they wouldn't that, have my strawberry cartons. But it's that so for me is an argument for why economics should not be in the biology. And and I hear what you say about but frivolous lawsuits. I think lawsuits. they use it. I think that, I think that there are people using endangered species. But you're just saying you don't like that they're winning. Act. You don't like that they're gaining. No, I'm, my examples are the, the spotted owl and, and the right. logging Industry, and I'm using the sage grouse for the extraction industry, those endangered species have been used to stop that activity from going on. Um, I believe that that is the primary uh, motivation. That is why it's, it, I don't want to overuse the term, but weaponized. I think that's where you're taking a very legitimate cause and you're using it for other purposes as well. And that's, I think, what I think they're trying to guard against. And I'm going with science on this. Science. science. Your but you know what, though? The science says that, and this is, I, I know this to be true, there is a lot of a human development uh, creates heat spots or places where, where species can actually uh, thrive more so than if it was empty. If you look at Australia, wallabies don't live across Australia. You know where they live or most primarily They've located? They've been segregated? Where there's water, where there's habitat, where there's things that humans have grown and made into something that wallabies can live in. It's true. I have that problem it's, in my backyard. It's the case. Sage grouse plant, they have their eggs or whatever near some of these uh, <laughs> drills because there's a heat source there and it's a, somewhere they, they can uh, nest.
close to. Oh, uh, we're so out of time. Imagine, imagine that. Yeah. Let's wow. save animals, yeah. except for that furry thing that's eating up my garden right now. That's fair. I kind of want to kill it. Yeah. That's not nice, though, so I probably won't. All right, we're out of time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Riveting conversation, as always. I yes. feel like we would be fun dinner guests, right? Yes, we would. Talk about Absolutely. all kinds of things. Yeah. We won't even talk about money or religion, just politics. Yeah. <laughs> that is it anyway. for us this week. Have a great weekend. Tell your friends about us. Subscribe, listen. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.